listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. indeed. Welcome to the Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast, the Guitar Repair Podcast. My name is Eric Daw. I think that this is episode number 21, and we've got a great interview for you today at the second half of the show. Jason Verlindi, the publisher of the Fretboard Journal, joins us for a grilling one-on-one interview. Yeah. Sweet. And this is my lovely wife, Melissa, joining me as always. Hello, everyone. So we got a very full show, so why don't we jump right in? You know, do you want to, why don't you take a call with me? Oh, okay. Let's, let's take a call. Hello, Eric and Melissa. It's Dean up in Bow. I, uh, I had a question for you back in December. Uh, might have been the November podcast two episodes ago about uh, buzz in the electric guitar and uh, one of your suggestions that the shielding that I added had not been grounded uh, turned out to be the trick. So thank you very much. Uh, for my next question, I am working on a, an acoustic guitar with a ebony fretboard and this has the sort of common uh, grooves worn in in the in between the frets and the fretboard from lots of play. It's not that old of a guitar, but um, the worn areas in between the strings that you get on the fretboard. I'm wondering if there's a, a easy way to repair that or if it's cutting that section out and putting in new fretboard there is the only way. Uh, I thought because it's all black and kind of matte that maybe there's a way to fill that that would that would hold up and work. And if you know of it, let me know. Uh, thanks again for the podcast, and I'll talk to you soon. Good luck with the baby. Bye. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, there's a um, there's a way to fill that in, and and I used to do this um, from time to time. If if you want a good tutorial on it, you can go to frets.com. Frank Ford is the guy that uh, posted a pretty good uh, little article about it with pictures on how to do that. And um, you can fill in those divots with super glue and ebony dust or ebony, you know, sanding. What do you call it? Particulate. Yeah. The problem I have with doing that, and the reason I haven't done it for a long, long time, is that I saw once, I've been doing this long enough that I've I've seen some of my repairs come back, and the problem with doing that is that those fingerboards get oiled. And so the oil kind of creeps under the filled parts, and there's just no way 
doesn't blend in very yeah. well. Yeah, I mean, I can I can fill those divots with super glue and ebony powder, ebony dust, um, and uh, make it invisible. I mean, you can really pretty much make it invisible. But how long will it stay invisible? Hmm. It it starts to look pretty crappy after it's been oiled for a few years. So I'm kind of more leaning towards leaving those alone. It really doesn't hurt anything. You, you hate to cut out sections of the fingerboard that's super invasive. You hate to plane the neck if... Unless it's... Yeah. I, I'm... I'm I'm leaning t- more towards leaving those alone, especially if this is a valuable instrument. I- I'm leaning more towards leaving that alone these days. Hmm. Yeah. That's cool. my answer. So I put the call up first, and that's what I'm going to do from from here on out. If you call, you get on the show first. Right? Great. Yeah. More incentive. I know, right? Um, so I really highly uh, encourage you to participate in the show. You can do so by calling 757 774 8482 leave me a voicemail there with your guitar related question and I will uh, use it as part of the show the other way to submit a question is through email oh you can text that number too 757-774-8482 call or text or you can email the show by going to my website ericdaw.com e-r-i-c-d-a-w.com click the contact link and submit your question there. And without further ado, we shall read some of those questions now. Awesome. We get Hey, Eric. In one of your recent podcasts, you mentioned Tom Wheeler's book, The Stratocaster Chronicles. Is that like the Chronicles of Narnia? Not at all. Okay. Which is one of my favorites. What are some of your most prized or sought-after guitar-related books? Are there any you feel listeners must have in their personal libraries? Absolutely love the podcast. John Nicholas. That's a great question, John. You know, there. I wish I could remember the name of the book that, that, <laughs> I, it, that I thought of when I read your question. I tried to research it online. I can't remember it. I read it 10 years ago, and the title completely eludes me. It's a very hard book to find that was loaned to me by a drummer friend of mine, but I can tell you what it's kind of about, and I bet you some listener somewhere will email me and tell me what the book is, cool. I hope. Yeah, but fingers crossed. But it's basically like a, a zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, but for musicians, and it's basically a book about, you know, how to master your instrument without really trying, and it's all it's all mental. It's all... Um, you know, you're your own worst enemy. You have to overcome your confidence. You have to um, embrace uh, th- embrace the the imperfections that you have. You know, and sure. and I don't know how to describe it really, but it was concepts that can be applied to normal life. Absolutely, it was. Um, kind of a transformative book in the sense that, you know, it doesn't just apply to music, it applies to other things. It's kind of a, it was kind of a very um, zen, you know, uh, way of of looking at at things, and it's not all necessarily about notes and theory, you know. I wish I could describe it. Anyway, that was the book that I 
just popped into my mind. I hadn't thought about it for years, but it, you know, it can apply to other areas of life. And, and it, I think it Im- improved my repair abilities. Nice. Yeah, I really do. Uh, but I can't remember what it was called, so it doesn't do you any good at all. Hopefully somebody will, will email me and say, Hey, was it, was it this? But there are some other books. Fender, The Sound Heard Round the World by Richard R. Smith. That's a really cool book just about Fender history. Neptune Bound by Doug Tolick. Regular listeners to the podcast will remember uh, that I interviewed Doug for a previous episode. Uh, the Blackguard book, the, the book oh, about 50s one. Telecasters, I know the about early that 50s Telecasters by Nacho Banos. That's a great book. I highly recommend that book. I think it's a hundred bucks, but oh my God, is it beautiful. Doesn't Banos mean bathroom? Well, it does, but that's his name. I don't know if Nacho Banos is a uh, I don't know. It's nom a, de plume or... It's an interesting name. Yeah. In, in well, any way you look at it. I'm sure that that's what his mama named him. <laughs> uh, there's also kind of the precursor to that book was The Fender Telecaster by A.R. Duchoisois. Oh. Can you spell that? N- no. And uh, Strat in the Attic, Thrilling Stories of Guitar Archaeology by Deke Dickerson and Jonathan Kellerman. It's a really cool... Oh, that sounds th- awesome. Yeah, it's a really cool book about... Um, just case studies of several really super rare guitars that showed up and the story behind them. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's super cool. And the and the preface to the book explains a lot about, you know, why vintage guitars are as valuable as they are and why they should be. It's a really cool book. You should check that out. Anyway, that's my answer. Thanks for the question, John. Hi, Eric and Melissa. Great show. I have an older Japanese Fender Stratocaster, and it has Fender Texas Specials for pickups. I love the pickups, but they have staggered pole pieces. I wanted to try pickups with flat pole pieces. My buddy says that you can simply put a little pressure on the tall middle poles and gently push them down until they're flush with the pickup cover. Anytime a a question says, my buddy says that you can simply... Uh Uh-oh. Don't trust your buddy. (laughs) And magically, the pickup becomes a flat pole piece pickup. He says he's done this before and it didn't harm the pickup, but I'm skeptical. Is there any danger in just pushing the pole pieces down in order to achieve the desired result? I don't mind experimenting, but I don't want to kill my pickups. And if I do, is it reversible? If I don't like it, can I simply put the pole pieces back to their original height by pushing them up from the bottom of the pickup? Your guidance is appreciated. That's from Marty in Oklahoma. Marty, don't do it. Um, yeah, you can toast your pickups doing that. It it might work. It can work. It's been known to work, but it's also been known to kill your pickups. And it really is just going to depend on when you when you force those pole pieces down, if they just smoothly glide past the coil, or if they grab one of the wires. These wires on the coil of your bobbin are like finer than hair. And the coil is wrapped directly around the magnets. So you're dragging that magnet right past the coil, and it can easily break the internal part of the coil. And the only solution, once you've done that, is to rewind it or replace it. So don't do it. Just go by Just flat go pole by piece. flat pull pieces if you're that uh, concerned about it. Yeah. There you go, Marty. 
Hello, Eric and Melissa. I really want to thank you for the fabulous podcast. I've learned a great deal from listening and appreciate you sharing all the years of experience. My one complaint, having to wait a whole month to hear the next podcast. Come on, you guys, get with the program. I need my fret files fixed. We, yeah, if we didn't have about 15 minutes a month to do this podcast, we're going to try. We're trying. Yeah, I would would actually like to make this a... Either a bi-monthly or a weekly podcast, but we just don't have time right now. But yeah. we're working towards that goal. Yeah. Thanks. We have too many babies. That's correct. Uh, last month I wrote in about a guitar I built for my daughter. You gave me some awesome advice. Your suggestion to add a shim to the neck pocket was great. I cut out a very slightly angled shim, thinner toward the headstock side and a bit thicker toward the bridge, buttoned everything back up, adjusted the bridge, and now the guitar sounds and plays wonderfully. No more buzz. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I have some questions about Stratocaster vintage-style tremolos. Since I build, it would be helpful to purchase reasonably priced bridges, mostly so I can build more guitars. But it's important the recommended bridges are of good quality. Sure, it's true. In many cases, you you get what you pay for. But isn't there something that would be of good quality and not outrageously expensive? The options are overwhelming. There is everything from cheap Chinese tremolos costing less than $10. That's going to have to be junk. Yep. All the way up to Callahan tremolo, which is just too expensive. Eric, is there a quality tremolo option worth putting on a guitar and still be reasonably priced? While we're on the subject of vintage tremolos, could you explain the reasons for different string spacing and screw spacing? It gets very confusing. It starts wide with two and seven thirty seconds strings and screw spacing. Then there is two and one sixteenth inch string spacing with two and seven thirty seconds inch screw spacing, which appears to be American <laughs> sizing. Is, are you following this? This is all just done to con- to confuse you and yeah. confound you. Then there are Mexican versions with their two and one sixteenths for both string and screw spacing. What differences in terms of playability is there? Do you think the different spacing could be an influence on the sound of the guitar? If so, what differences could a player expect? Thanks. Keep up the great work. John Nicholas, Pleasant Valley, New York. John, thanks for the question. The reason for the different spacings is to drive guitar repairmen crazy. <laughs> that's the. That's really the reason. Uh, no, it it's an arbitrary thing, but... Um, Mexican versions and Japanese versions and they all, you know, they're made in different places on different machinery and they just went with their own freaking measurements. They didn't base it on the original Fender measurements. So you you end up with now, years later, now we have all these different trem sizes and it's just enough to make you crazy. So I think it's it's just to, to drive guys like me crazy. But yeah. I know. It it's it is it is frustrating. Uh th- do I think there do I think the different spacing could be an influence on the sound of the guitar? Well, to me it influences the playability. I don't like the narrower ones. Mm-hmm. I like the full-size American version. So, uh uh you know, in that sense it it they feel better, I think. The, the American version. Um, the cheap Chinese tremolos, stay away from those. Callaham is great if you can afford it, but I agree they're expensive. 
you know, you can get for about it's somewhere between 70 and 100 bucks you can get a Goto Strat Tremolo and uh I really think they're great. Um I think it's called the 510 the 510T. Yeah, the 510T Goto Tremolo is uh uh it's got a it's got a steel block, it's got a I think am, am I looking at the right one? No, that's actually that's not the right one. Okay, I had to pause the show and look it up. It's the Goto SB0202-010. Uh, actually, that's all parts, part number. SB-0202-010. Uh, I tried to look for it on Goto's website, and it's not listed on their website. It appears like it's only you can only get it through Interesting. other distributors. But, it, you know, it's the Goto Vintage Style Tremolo. And uh, it ranges anywhere from you know fifty to a hundred bucks, and they have it in chrome and nickel and gold, and they have one that's aged that looks real nice. So there you go. That's the one that that I recommend. It it won't break the bank, but it's way nicer than the cheap ones. Cool. Hi, Eric and Melissa. As always, thanks for the show. Hope the little one is doing well. He is. I wondered if you had ever heard of the Trem King Trem system that can supposedly be retrofitted to a Telecaster. I've always wondered if this type of thing exists and wonder if you could, if you've heard of this model and what your thoughts were. I've played some tellies with Bigsby Trems and could never get them to feel right, so this looked like an interesting idea. Thanks, as always, for your generosity and sharing your expertise with all of us listeners. Kurt from Seattle. Thanks, Kurt. Yeah, you know, I agree with you on Bigsby's on tellies. I, they never felt right to me either. I looked, I'd never heard of the Trem King. I did look it up. Um, it looks like you have to route under the bridge. And to me, that's kind of a deal breaker. I, personally, I wouldn't do it. Unless it were just some experimental telly that I was building from parts for, you know, just for the purposes of having a, a, a Telecaster with a Tremolo. But a Telecaster with a Tremolo is... I don't know. It, it's kind of unnecessary, I think. I mean, as a tr- as a Telecaster player, that's part of the whole thing about a Telecaster is that they're a, a solid piece of wood where the strings go through and they're a, a hardtail deal. So, I don't know. I, I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about trims on, on tellies, but, you know, it could be done. I, I just, I, I looked at the website. looks like it has to be routed out. So I wouldn't do that on any Telecaster you care about. That's my answer. But it might be cool. might be just what you're looking for. I don't know. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks, Kurt. Hi, Eric and Melissa. I just found your podcast today, and I've already binged on four episodes, and I'm enjoying the show thoroughly. I have a Warmoth parts caster that's nearly 15 years old. At the time, I wasn't confident in my luthier abilities as I am now. I've made a few parts casters since, and I'm halfway through my first scratch build. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. So I had never, so I had the whole huh. guitar finished. Our, our baby is being rather loud. <laughs> Sorry, That's everybody. Okay. That's okay. It's a real podcast. Yeah. This is real life, people. So I had the whole guitar finished, assembled, and set up by a guitar tech to the stars in, in Denmark Street, London, named Graham Noden. I've never touched... A guitar that's played as well, and everyone who picks it up raves about it. But there has been a problem with the nitro lacquer finish from not long after I picked it up. 
possibly due to me subjecting it to too big a shift in temperature and humidity. Fine cracks appeared over almost the entire body, but initially I felt it had sort of a cool vintage vibe, and I decided I liked it. Hmm. The problem is that a couple of quarter-sized flakes chipped off of the upper bout and above the bridge, and I'm worried that gradually the whole finish will fall off in one piece, one piece at a time if something isn't done. The thoughts that I've had... Do you need help? Sorry. The thoughts that I've had include using cyanacrylate glue to fill the missing chips and arrest the spread, wiping the surface with something solvent-based to melt the surface together, or a respray, which is something I very much don't want to do unless it's the only way to save it. What would you suggest? Scott in the UK. P.S. I'm sorry that this message was way too long. However, if for some perverse reason you find it too short, I can email you pictures. Not necessary on the pictures. Uh, Scott, thanks for the question. You know, you didn't mention what color it is, and I think that that would would have an effect on my answer. If it's a natural finish, it's probably, it's going to be really easy to touch up those those chips if it's a if it's a custom color or a or a really unique color or something or a, or a red or a white uh that can be really hard to match that can be really hard to to touch up if it's black that's easy if it's clear that's pretty easy um my son has something to say about this as well it's hard to- this is adam he's two months old and uh, he's just a, he's just a grumpy he's, little two-month-old right now. That's why I couldn't finish that question, because I had a squirmy two-month-old in my arms. Sorry, yeah. everybody. That's okay. Um, so, yeah, you, you know, you could, you could respray it. You, you could use cyanacrylate to, to fill the missing chips. Um, those are all valid options. I would lean more towards, you know, living with it. That's me. You know, I, I I don't mind a chipped guitar, especially if it's, it sounds like you love the guitar. I wouldn't let the paint bother me, because really, it's going to get chipped. You're, if you love that guitar, it's something you're going to play for a long, long, long time, and it's you could fix these chips, and then you might just get more, so I don't know. But I, I hear what you're saying. You're worried about the whole finish flaking off. You could certainly... Um, you know, get a little bit proactive with some with some cyanacrylate with some super glue, and glue down any edges where the where it looks like you're going to get a chip flaking off. You could do that. So, yeah, yeah. I don't feel like I was much help there, to Scott. Yeah, you've you've had a lot of just leave it questions. Yeah, I, it, well, like I say, it depends on the color. If it if it's a clear finish, yeah, cyanacrylate. Do it. Cool. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Scott. Hey, Eric. Great podcast last month. What's your take on jumbo frets? And have you ever built a double neck? Thanks, Jonathan in Victoria, Canada. Wow. Before you answer, yeah, I really like Jonathan's. He's just so concise. He's so point. straight, efficient, to the point. Thank you, Jonathan. Not that I mind the longer questions. You you don't like the verbose questions? It's just my I have I'm not a very good reader. It's just hard to feed a baby while you're reading That's correct. lengthy questions. Thanks, Jonathan. Jonathan, thanks for the question. Uh my take on jumbo frets, you know, frets I tell people 
this all the time, but frets, it's really a personal preference. I think I've mentioned this on the show before about in regard to pickups. People ask me, well, what kind of pickup should I put in it? And it's kind of like standing at the ice cream counter and asking someone else to recommend an ice cream flavor. It's hard to say what you're going to like. It's hard to know um, what your personal preferences are going to be. And what I like might not be what you like. Now, that being said, you know, because frets are a personal preference, there are some general things that I could tell you about jumbo frets that might help you make a decision. Um, If you bend a lot, then a lot of players feel like jumbo frets are easier to bend on. You know, the smaller frets, really, you you get a lot more friction from the fingerboard there. So, um, also a lot of players seem to feel like you can you can play faster, you can get around faster on a jumbo fret. Um, uh, but there's drawbacks as well. Some, some things to consider are um, jumbo frets, uh, one of the biggest complaints that I hear, and, and a lot of people don't even realize it's their frets that are causing it, but if you press down too hard you are going to raise the pitch of the string too high and you can never play in tune. So jumbo frets require a bit of a lighter touch. Otherwise you'll have intonation problems. You'll have tuning problems. Uh, And other than that, it's just a feel thing. You know, I used to love jumbo frets and I had an old Harmony rocket and I put jumbo frets on it and I handed it to my friend Michael and he said, oh my God, why did you put these cable ties on here, the railroad ties. <laughs> to him, it felt like every fret was a mountain. You know, he just, he hated it. And I thought it played so smooth. I couldn't believe he didn't like it, you know. But I've really come around to to smaller frets. I kind of like the vintage style frets that you find on old uh, old fenders. So it's really personal preference. That that's really what it is, and have I ever built a double neck? No, and I probably never will, unless I build a Junior Brown Git Steel. Have you ever seen Junior Brown's guitar? No, but I can imagine. It's a it's a lap steel and a Telecaster. Oh yes, I have. So it's it's I've a double neck because it's got two guitars on it, but it's it's super cool. Junior Brown's the I feel man. like that would be about 50 pounds. Wouldn't that uh, hurt your neck? Yeah, but he's made of steel. Oh, so. okay. No, I don't know. I don't know how heavy it is. You could you could lighten it up if it were made out of the right materials, but um, yeah. Hmm. All right. Thanks, Jonathan. Hi, Eric. Here's one for the scam until proven otherwise category. The Hulizer. Hulizer? The Hulizer. The Hulizer from Germany. This is from the website using Google Translate. Yeah, the website, you know, it's a German product called the Hulizer, okay, you guys? And you have to just, it, you can go look it up, but it looks like a little, it's a hockey puck full of liquid, and you basically stick it on your headstock. But the website's totally in German, so I, in order to get the description, I had to use Google Translate. So here, here read, the, read the description. It might not quite, you know, add up because it's been translated by a, by a script on a server somewhere in cyberspace. Here we go. The Hulazer makes the unique vibration behavior of, of liquids on the benefits and first used in musical instruments. 
a liquid in elaborate chamber system as acoustic vibration transducer. I feel like these are just random words stuck together. Well, they are, but... Uh, this method is applied for a patent and is offered exclusively by Hulizer World. There are two different versions. <clears throat> type C for classical guitar, type E for electric guitars and acoustic guitars. The benefits include increased volume, improved sustain, more balanced sound, reduced noise, and optimized overtones. There is currently an interesting debate on this in the largest German musicians forum, which as a, a very high standard of discussion, unlike many other online forums, a user even set up a test environment, recorded files with and without the thing, and created a survey to find out if there are differences. Crazy. Yeah. Keep going with the podcast and good luck. Plus strong nerves to Melissa, Melissa with you and your expanding family. Thanks, Axel. Thank you, Axel. Uh, I I even went to this website of the uh, the German uh, Musicians Forum and looked at the uh, sound files and the what everybody was saying there too, and it was all in German. So I just I don't know what's going on with that, but I looked at the pictures, I listened to some sound files, and I really. What can I say, you guys? I mean, I, I, I had to try really hard not to laugh. It's a hockey puck f- with some liquid in it. I, and it's probably about 300 bucks. I don't know how much it was. It was in, like, you know, Deutschen Marks or something. <laughs> I have no idea. I don't know. But uh, just play. Don't worry about the hockey puck full of water. These These scam products that come out, I mean, there's some things that are a little more practical than others, like... We talked about bridge pins last episode, you know? Yeah. I can see putting nice bridge pins on your nice acoustic guitar because, you know, why use plastic when you can use bone or something cool? You know, it's a quality thing, but it's not going to, you know, everybody's looking for this this magic thing that's going to make the, their tone awesome. Do, do you think Mississippi Fred McDowell cared what material his bridge pins were made out of. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there's two kinds of players. Guys that obsess over a good tone and how to get it, and guys that just have good tone and don't worry about it. The internet's full of the former, not so much the latter. No offense meant if you're of the former. Look, I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm just saying, you know, there's this rabbit hole of just shut up and play. Tone OCD, where guys are counting threads on screws, and it's like, you just want to grab your head and say, my God, what on earth? Can we just get back to, like, you know, plugging a, a guitar straight into a tube amp and just playing? I don't need the hockey puck full of water on my, <laughs> on my headstock. This is insane. This is insanity. <laughs> Uh, but that's just my very opinionated opinion. If you work for Hulazer and you want to sue me, then have, have, have fun with that. Let's take a break. We'll come back with an amazing interview with Jason Verlindi. So we... This is Jay Boone, owner of Emerald City Guitars in downtown Seattle. The best source for vintage guitars and amplifiers. 
not only on the West Coast, but around the world. As we embark on our 20th year of business down here in Pioneer Square, we are striving to continue to bring you great service and great products. We're remodeling our whole store this year, and it's going to be amazing. We're also redoing our website, emeraldcityguitars.com, for our online customers around the world. We'd like to give a big shout-out of appreciation for all your patronage over all the years down here at Emerald City Guitars, and we really strive to continue to bring the best that we can to our customers. Visit our website at emeraldcityguitars.com or visit our shop at 83 South Washington Street in downtown Seattle. Our business line is 206-382-0231, and we're open Monday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Remember, Emerald City Guitars, the best source for vintage guitars and amplifiers and service and repair. You know... I don't know if you know this, but my wife makes incredible leather goods, specifically guitar straps. She makes hand-tooled, amazing guitar straps, and she's sitting right here looking embarrassed. Thank you for saying that they're beautiful. And um, if you want to check out my guitar straps, you can head over to melcoleather.com. That's M-E-L-C-O leather.com. And that will direct you straight to my Etsy site where, if you so wish, you can purchase and receive a beautiful, handmade, made-to-order guitar strap from yours truly. Do you take custom orders? I do. They're beautiful. You have to see them. MelcoLeather.com. Right? Right. Uh, As I make guitars, you know, we share a shop in the backyard there. As I'm making guitars, she's sitting in the other corner making straps, and I see her make these straps she's so meticulous and so gifted and thanks you're such a craftsman craftswoman you're such a crafty person (laughs) you're so crafty (laughs) uh really high quality leather handmade leather guitar straps check them out melcoleather.com Fretboard Journal publisher Jason Verlindy served as the former managing editor of Amazon.com's music store. Before that seven-year stint in the world of e-commerce, Verlindy was an associate editor at Tower Records' Pulse magazine. He's written about music for numerous dailies, weeklies, and national magazines, including the Seattle Times, the Seattle Weekly, Option, Ray Gunn, and others. He plays guitar, mandolin, and ukulele, and it says in parentheses, Though none all that well. Uh-huh. Uh, and with all that humility, here he is, Jason Verlindy. Hi, Jason. Hi, Eric. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for uh, allowing me to interview you. I, I know that you were a little trepidatious about being grilled. Well, I want to interview you one day, so we'll <laughs> we'll figure this all out together. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Uh, where are you from originally? I grew up in Northern California in Sacramento. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, which has a, quite a few guitar builders now. Back then, it didn't really have much, but uh, I know there's like Doug Cowers down there and uh, 
there's Paul Roney and a fair number of guitar people down there now. Yeah. What, did you have a very musical childhood? When did this uh, guitar <laughs> obsession start? You know, I had a uh, a mother who was very supportive of us going to Tower Records and, and buying music, and she took us to concerts. Um, you know, I remember seeing Bruce Springsteen in 1984 when I was 10 years old, and uh, she she was very great about all of that stuff, but uh, there weren't a lot of musical instruments around the house, and uh, aside from a brief stint playing piano, mm-hmm. uh, I was more of a music appreciator. Uh, I went to UC Davis, which had a great radio station sort of in line with KEXP up here in Seattle. Oh. And that's when I kind of got sucked into the world of, you know, making music, indie rock, um, getting getting deeper, finding old-timey music, uh, you know, all the stuff that happens when you get sucked into the rabbit hole of college radio. Yes. Or, or used to happen when college radio was good. So Yeah. Well, when did you get your first guitar? Or, or was the guitar your first instrument? You know, I have... Uh, I, I took up the musical saw when I was down there, believe it or not. No, really? Uh, You're pulling I my did. leg. I'm not. There is actually, uh, by my account, the, the greatest living musical saw player, this guy named Robert Armstrong, who also is a fine, really exceptional uh, guitarist and, and banjo player. Uh, he plays with Robert Crumb and the Cheap Suit Serenaders. Oh, uh, wow. Oh, yeah. He is, he's a... A pretty famous illustrator. He designed uh, Mickey Rat and uh, a fair number of underground comics in the 60s and 70s. But he played Saw on the One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest soundtrack. <laughs> and and literally that was, I guess, my gateway drug because I was so fascinated by this kind of random musical instrument that none of my friends were playing. So I didn't feel competitive or anything uh, or behind the curve. Uh, I, I got some saw lessons from him and that really opened the doors because, you know, it was it was wow. a saw lesson one week and then listening to 78 records with him the next week. Uh, and he's still down there and uh, playing music and just the one of the nicest guys imaginable, uh, one of a great instructor for uh, for all things old timey and uh you know, cool. he had this amazing collection of banjos and guitars and national instruments, and that was really an eye-opener for me. And so I owe a lot to Bob. And then I worked down in Sacramento and, and worked for Tower Records magazine, which was a very eclectic, amazing place to work, mm-hmm. and moved up here. And, and when I, it was probably when I finally moved to Seattle that I had enough, and, and by that I don't mean much, disposable income that I could buy a nice guitar and sort of the gear acquisition syndrome kicked in and, and the rest is history. Hmm. What was your first uh, nice or quality guitar? Boy, that's a good question. You know, I had a uh, an infatuation with tenor guitars for a while. And oh, yeah. So I, I bought a, uh, a nice little Martin 17-style uh, tenor that is still here. Uh, and then I bought, uh, you know, I think I probably bought like a Martin D16. That was like my first real six string guitar. Um, and then, you know, it quickly escalated from there, but that was kind of, a, at a price point where I felt like I could dip my toes into the water. Yeah. Did, were you, yeah. were you drawn to Martin guitars, uh, naturally over, over say other brands like Gibson? Well, I don't have the nostalgia uh, for Martin guitars, or I didn't at the time. Now I'm, you know, a total Martin history geek. But uh, yeah. at the time, it was just a, a, a good offer that passed through and uh, seemed interesting. I, uh, you know, I also had a fondness for cheap electric, so I had a couple of Tysco Del Rey's, like everybody gets, you know. And, yeah. Uh, 
and and loved kind of the just the funkier sounds of those and and kind of uh you know it's sort of like a nice meal like you kind of don't want to know what the nicest meal in town is you're kind of happy with your cheap burrito uh-huh. and that yeah. was the Tysco's for me so i didn't that's... want to play like a burst or anything yeah that's a great analogy Tysco's are <laughs> Tysco's are very much like a cheap burrito but very funky yeah, I love the you know I, I love the sounds that you can get out of some of those guitars. It's like they accidentally made really cool sounding guitars. Yeah, and it's it's sort of fascinating now to see all these guys making gold foil pickups and kind of taking it up a notch, but kind of very much in the same spirit of what those Tyscos were. Mm-hmm. Those and those reproduction Tysco gold foil pickups cost more than those <laughs> yeah. those guitars used to cost as a whole back in the day. For sure. For yeah. Sure. Yeah, that's fascinating. So I'm thinking back about the saw player. You know, I think I have an R. Crumb 78 in my collection. So you're telling me he plays the saw on that 78, yeah, likely? Bob, Bob Armstrong, uh, you know, there's uh, that band consists of Robert Crumb, uh, Al Dodge, uh, a, a guy named Terry Zweigoff who directed the Crumb movie, uh, Bob Armstrong. It used to have Bob Brosman in it. And. Uh, they're all, you know, I, I would say, frankly, Crumb is, you know, the most famous illustrator of the bunch, but um, he's probably the least proficient or virtuistic as as musicians go of the bunch. But, um, you know, everybody knows it for being Crumb's band. But, yeah, uh, Armstrong's great. He's an incredible, uh, you know, resonator player, tenor banjo player, ukulele player. Mm-hmm. He just uh, he's one of those guys who back in the 60s was taking lessons from all of these vaudeville entertainers who were kind of near the end of their life but still around and you know coherent so, so he was he was like a one man wrecking crew yeah yeah <laughs> <clears throat> uh have, have you ever played music professionally or even in a band uh i have not played in a band that anybody would want to hear i think i have played uh on some bands records i actually played saw on uh a band that Josh from Barsook Records had a million years ago, and I played Saw on a Billy Childish record, believe wow, it or not. Really? Um, yeah, yeah, I played Saw, and, and that was kind of a funny story, because I was a huge Billy Childish fan, and I interviewed him for some magazine that I was writing for at the time, and this came up, This, you know, he was looking for a Saw player for some odd reason. And uh, I was, you know, kind of eager to travel the world, and I'm like, well, come on, you know, come out, and, you know, if you need a Saw player, I'll be there for you. And uh, everyone thinks of Billy Childish as being this lo-fi kind of one-take guy. Yeah. But I swear my saw track, and it is my saw track because it's you know kind of funky and out of tune and, and not very good. I'm, it's instantly <laughs> recognizable. He's taken that, that track from the multi-track and used it on like six different records. It's pretty hilarious. Nice. You know, it, it showed up as a – it was originally a Head Coatee's track, and then it showed up on one of his tracks. And so it's just it's, kind of funny. This is before all these modern saw players started using auto-tune, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was your career path uh, prior to the Fretboard Journal? I, and I know you uh, uh, you worked for Amazon and also uh, Pulse Magazine. So I was I was on track to be, uh, you know, a print journalist, that, that profession, which doesn't really exist too much these days. Um, and I was writing for a bunch of publications. I was very much writing as a, you know, interviewing bands and artists about their new record, the way most journalists eke out a living. I moved up to Seattle to work for Amazon in 98, which was literally the year that they decided to start selling music. And so they were originally just a bookstore, of course. Yeah. And they hired this very eclectic 
brilliantly, you know, everyone was brilliant, but a very eclectic group of people to kind of launch their music, music store. So it was everyone from former Rolling Stone editors to people who had worked for cool radio stations, music journalists, uh, people who had worked for record labels. And we all kind of converged. We were all complete music fanatics. And we were kind of thrown into the world of cubicles and uh, a very quickly growing dot com. And we all kind of figured it out. So originally the job there was, you know, pretty similar to what I was doing at Pulse. I was a music journalist. I was writing and reviewing. I was writing about bands and reviewing records for the site, uh, reviewing as many new releases as we could because they kind of started from zero and wanted to have as much coverage as possible. And I was there for a fair amount of time and ha wore a lot of different hats and the job changed pretty dramatically over the years. And um, people came and people left and there were reorgs and there were booms and busts and all the stuff that people know about from the heyday of the internet. Uh, and at the time I, you know, really got the guitar bug and I mm. really, really started to geek out on, you know, the Mandolin Brothers catalog that would come in the mail or the elderly new arrival <laughs> listings or, you know, guitar magazines. But I always love guitars and I love guitar people and I always hated guitar magazines. Yeah. And, uh, and, and most of my musician friends felt the same way. I um, hear you. You know, mus music... There's sort of guitar music meant for guitarists, which is what a lot of the guitar magazines feature, are these bands that, you know, only a guitarist would know of or artists that only a guitarist would know of. And then there's real music. There's the music that you, you know, want to listen to regularly. Right. That's Sometimes right. those two, you know, those two paths cross, but not a lot. And uh, and I was I've always been a media magazine junkie. And so I've always gone to, you know, Bulldog News or the newsstand down at Pike Market and geeked out over these gorgeous magazines that are real keepsake quality. And they existed for surfing. They existed for watch collectors. They existed for all of these industries that are out there. But then you look at the guitar section. It was like, really, is this the best we can do? Mm -hmm. um, so as I was burning out at my uh, internet job at Amazon, I uh, took a leave of absence and uh, my partner at the time, Michael John Simmons, who was working at Griffin Instruments down in the Bay Area, um, we we decided to start a magazine. We, we, uh, we created a prototype and we asked everyone we knew who was a instrument geek and a decent writer to contribute and you know, the rest is kind of history. That was 11 years ago. Yeah, wow. Well, tell me about how does ukulele occasional fit in? Yeah, so that was uh, that was another uh, product of me being kind of burned out with my corporate gig, I guess. Uh, so Michael and I, uh, Michael was doing writing for me at Amazon, and uh, I guess, gosh, when was that? It was probably 15 years ago that the ukulele occasional came out. We were we were geeking out about uh, you know just ukuleles and the obscure history and and we're not you know we're not necessarily fans of the pretty music that people associate with ukuleles today or with the singer-songwriters who are making cute songs uh on the ukuleles we were kind of interested in the demented stories of cliff edwards and you know what happened to roy smack and you know the the early martin ukuleles which kind of saved the company during the depression that um you know don't really get the recognition that they deserve. Yeah. Uh, so we made this zine. It was it was literally a zine. You know, we printed probably twelve, fifteen hundred copies up at a plant in Canada, and uh, you know, total self distributed uh, early online shopping cart 
early website. Yeah. Uh, I think Elderly bought a few hundred, which was great. Um, they, they, you know, but we were way ahead of the curve. I mean, we, we were doing this in like, you know, 2000 and ukuleles kind of boomed when, you know, Jake Shimabakuro, you know, uh-huh. did while my guitar gently weeps and all that other stuff that happened. But we were like way ahead of the curve. If we were doing this today and today there are actually a couple of ukulele magazines, but, um, you know, there, there would have been advertising for this thing back then, but, you know, 15, 16 years ago, you know, trying to hit up you know, even the the existing ukulele companies for advertising, everybody was kind of just, it was so underground, it felt yeah. like. Well, you should think about reissuing those under the Fretboard Journal. Yeah, for the, for a while, they were pretty collectible, you know. The, those We did two issues. We we weren't really, you know, we called it Ukulele Occasional because we always wanted an out. We always wanted an escape right, if right. we ran out of There's stories. There's no, no commitment if you call it occasional. It's yeah, not a periodical. <laughs> That's kind of what happened too. You know, we did two, and we were starting to get a little bit of a following. And then I, I hate to say this, but it, we just kind of ran out of good stories. There were stories that we weren't, you know, we could have chased down a bunch of artists that we weren't that interested in, but we sort of lost our enthusiasm a little bit. Sure. Um, and uh, and publishing on that scale is really hard, especially when you have a day job and you know you're you're basically much like podcasting. You're not really making money off of it. It's more of a thing where you gotta love it. So, mm-hmm. so, so then you met uh, uh, Michael Simmons through Amazon. Is that? Yeah, I met Michael. I think I may have met Michael actually through Bob Armstrong to to full, make this full circle. But wow. yeah, I, I met Michael through uh, Amazon. He did a lot of writing for us. We were always assigning record reviews, oh, and that- Michael is a true walking encyclopedia of both music and fretted instrument knowledge and uh and he continues to be just the most awesome resource imaginable michael's the guy who at you know at the dinner party if a guitar is passed over his lap he will you know he can just go on with details and tell you exactly what he's looking at um and now he's working back at griffin kind of doing a lot of their online content so all the cool Mm. photos of old-time musicians and and guitar porn that you see on the Griffin Instruments uh, Facebook page. That's all Michael. So. And as far as the roles are divvied up at Fretboard Journal, you are the publisher and Michael is the editor, basically, right? Editor at large? Yeah, he was. Well, he was. He, uh, you know, it was a very 50-50 split uh, at the beginning, and then we brought on a couple other people. Um, I was always, you know, the business person and the person who would try to figure out how to actually produce and distribute a magazine with the content that Michael was generating. And then, uh, you know, we, we kind of shifted roles over the years. Michael kind of backed off a little bit from editorial and kind of focused on some other stuff. And then I kind of just took over the whole kid and caboodle Mm. a few years ago. Uh Uh, Michael still, you know, contributes as much as he can. And we have an open door policy to get as much of his writing in as possible. But, um, yeah, so he just didn't want to deal with the, constant deadlines and you know sure it's kind of a thankless job putting out a magazine to be honest oh sure yeah yeah uh you know i've got kind of a delicate question go for it (laughs) when the two of you brainstormed this idea i'm sure that you started bouncing it off of friends and maybe spouses i've got this idea for a guitar nerd magazine it's going to be keepsake quality it's going to have very few ads in it it's yeah. gonna gonna be printed on the nicest paper we can find <laughs> right now did yeah. people did people think that you were a little bit crazy yeah i mean i'm i'm very lucky in that i i probably met my 
now wife uh, about a month before this idea was hatched. So she was stuck with me throughout the whole process. <laughs> uh, no, I, uh, you know, we obviously print magazines are an interesting industry right now. Uh, and, and we're definitely diversifying and, and still, you know, doing the print. But yeah, I mean, most of the advice we got from people in the industry was um, you should have more ads. You should, <laughs> sure. um, you should feature this guy. Um, you know, and, and, you know, we just kind of followed our gut and that's kind of how I still do this business. I mean, every, every artist, everything that goes into it is sort of like, I, I go through my a checklist in my head of like, do what I, do I actually like this music? Well, am I going to listen to this music a year from now? Or am I just, you know, being courted by a publicist or, uh, is this a, is this an idea that will stand the test of time? I guess is the bigger question. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we did have some good models. You know, there's a there's a magazine called the Surfer's Journal, which is immensely successful and probably in their 30th year. Um, that's been a magazine about surfing culture and surfing surfboard shapers. Um, extremely similar in format. I owe them a ton of, you know, we've been totally inspired by what they do. Um, and I always looked at that and thought, you know, if surfing can, the surfing industry can sustain this, um, why can't the guitar industry sustain this? Sure. But yeah, it's a very, you know, it's a very wild idea back in the day. Yeah. And, and one that, uh, you know, to put the onus on the readers, you know, and, and make it a $13 magazine in the stores or $40 to subscribe, you know, everyone was like, you're not going to get any readers. And the truth is, you know, I would love it if our audience was twice as big, but our readers who like, who get the magazine, love it. Like it's their Bible. And oh, yeah. so I, I'm really happy that we have the number of readers that we do and that they love it versus, you know, trying to court lukewarm readers who come and go. And, you know, you have all that attrition over the years of customers. I mean, ours are pretty faithful. So that's yeah. pretty cool. Well, I'm glad that you went with your gut and you stuck to your guns because the, the quality of the magazine, both in look and in content, it speaks for itself. I mean, it, I love you. it. I'm I'm a subscriber. I it's it's an amazing magazine. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. What do you have a favorite issue or a favorite interview that maybe you've done or a favorite interview that someone else has has done? Boy, we've done. You know, that's a tough one. You know, I'd say uh, going back a ways in our fifth issue, we had a cover story on Tony Rice and his guitar, his Martin, and. Uh, that is a pretty special Martin. That's the Martin that belonged, of course, to Clarence White. And, uh, and it's sort of an iconic instrument. It's been copied by Collings and Santa Cruz and, and Martin and, and by various yahoos in their basements carving out their sound hole extra large and trying to make it uh, look like that guitar. Um, you know, that was a very – Tony Rice, you know, he's, he's in declining health and, and hasn't given a ton of interviews over the last several years. But to be able to have a, a long form sit down and, and really just talk about, you know, the history of that guitar. And, wow, yeah. And Art is a ridiculously great writer. And, and we, you know, we have a story on Frank Wakefield, who is a kooky mandolin legend in our most recent issue. And, and so we love his writing. He's just a fabulous writer and a, a great player. Um, but yeah, that was that was a pretty special story. And then, you know, more recently, I, I did an interview with Ry Cooter. Oh, yeah. Something like 30 pages long. <laughs> Despite being 30 pages long, you know, people were quick to point out, you didn't cover the John Lee Hooker stuff. You didn't cover <laughs> this. But, um, you know, that was, uh, I've been asking probably from the first year of this magazine if Ry Cooter would do an interview. And uh, he is not uh, a guy who does a lot of interviews at all. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
you know, he's uh, come out of his shell a little bit recently with this new project he's doing with Ricky Skaggs. But um, and, and he's on Twitter. He's an amazing wow. tweeter. So uh, oh, I'll Oban have to find him. Oban underscore city, whatever that means, uh, huh. is uh, Ry Cooter's handle. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I went there and, you know, to be honest, I I didn't really know what to expect. My wife and, and kid came down with me to L.A. for this interview so they could get a vacation out of it. And I, I remember leaving the hotel and telling my wife, like, I might be back in an hour or I might be back tonight. I have no idea what's going to happen when I yeah. get to Ry Cooter's gear locker. And, uh, and it was really like I got like five hours with him and, and we were all exhausted about we, we were exhausted talking about guitars at the end. Uh, but we got some incredible photographs. We got to talk to him about all sorts of stuff. And, and I'm, I was really happy that 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 turned out. And, you know, he was he was really into it. So that yeah. was cool. it was an incredible interview. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of all over the map. Yeah. Uh, another thing that is very unique to your magazine is is uh, the exclusive uh, and beautiful photography is 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 that you taking those pictures or are there? Uh, I mean, occasionally, not the the lesser the lesser quality photographs might be from me, but yeah, for the <laughs> most part, we're we're hiring pro photographers for each of our shoots. Um, we use very little stock photography. You know, eleven years ago, the stock photography that uh, manufacturers were producing was pretty much all the same. Now they're they've kind of you know raised the bar a little bit. They're getting better. There's you know on Instagram, there's some great guitar porn from manufacturers and on Facebook yeah. as well. Um, but we, you know, we, we actually are probably the only magazine that will, you know, cover a builder or manufacturer in depth and run just a couple of finished guitar shots because for us, it's more exciting to go behind the scenes and see how messy the workbenches are and to, you know, catch the luthiers in the wild and, and see these guitars as they're being constructed. So, it's kind of a, a known thing. If you're going to get a fretboard journal cover story or feature treatment, you know we're gonna we're not only going to send a writer your way, we're going to send a photographer and perhaps even a, a video guy as well. So. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, tell us about the fretboard journal podcast. Was that something that you always wanted to do, or was it more born out of uh, just promoting the magazine? Uh, you know, I, you know, the fretboard journal podcast in its earliest inception was like seven years ago. We were again way ahead of the curve. <laughs> Too much, you know, didn't result in anything for us financially. But uh, there was a a device. Uh, I guess it was is a website. It still exists. I still get emails from them called Blog Talk Radio, hmm. and uh, is basically a conference call kind of setup where you know you and a buddy or you could call this line by yourself could start broadcasting live in real time and then it would save it as a podcast and upload it to itunes it's a oh. pretty brilliant concept flawed by really poor audio quality um, yeah and, and i don't know if it's gotten any better maybe it has but you know it was almost uh because everyone working on the fretboard journal at the time was working remotely we would have these really long conversations not only editorial planning but just kind of geek out sessions about music and and musical instruments so i thought at the time like oh this would be a really cool way to you know market the magazine but also just kind of share some behind the scenes stuff that's going on and so we we did that about seven years ago we had a, a pretty eclectic group of guests we even took in some phone-in callers like you do now oh yeah uh, but the the audio quality and and you know kind of just brought it down for us a little bit and so 
fast forward, we, we still kind of have a mediocre sounding podcast. I'm working hard to improve the sound of it, but, uh, Oh, it sounds great. Oh, thank you. But, uh, yeah, so, so really, you know, the story of the fretboard journal is, you know, I love kooky stories. I love the characters of the musical instrument world of, of which you are definitely one of them. And so, <laughs> uh, you know, the ability to, it, it's great to be able to do a 20 page feature on Bill Collings of Collings guitars, but to do a podcast with Collings of, of Collings guitars, you, without a filter, you hear his real personality. Yeah. And, and I love that. And it's a relatively quick, an efficient way to get these stories and personalities across. And so that's really what I focus on. There's, there's now quite a few guitar podcasts. You've got a, one of the best, if not the best, as oh, far thanks. as I'm concerned. Thank you. Um, a lot of them are more gear review focused or, you know, conversational. I really just want to put a spotlight on other people who are, are doing interesting things. So that's what the Fritboard Journal podcast is. There's a great diversity of of subjects and people and topics on there, and that's what I love about it. Everything from musicians to builders and repairmen. Um, that one of my favorites was just recently the T.J. Thompson interview was just amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he is. We've done two with him now. Uh, I wasn't kidding when I said I. I think we should just put a webcam over his bench because I would just watch that all day long on a little <laughs> window in my monitor. But. Um, yeah, I mean, I you know, you meet all these guys. I'm sure you felt the same way. You meet these guys who, you know, through work or socially, and you're like, I, I, your story needs to be told. And and TJ is such a fascinating guy, and and really kind of underground. You know, he doesn't want people really calling him to get their guitar repaired. He, yeah. you know, has this backlog where the Punch Brothers are coming over and they need their priceless Martin repaired, or you know, all these amazing Cooter, all these amazing musicians are are calling him up so he he's kind of full with work he doesn't need any more work but he's been pioneering all these ridiculously complicated and expensive uh methods to make these martin guitars you know truthfully uh back to their prime and yeah. so uh yeah i mean honestly the the world of podcasts is obviously a younger audience there's probably not a lot of our you know tried and true fretboard journal readers who are into podcasts but um i love being able to hit a couple of different audiences with these subjects. And um, I love being able to do a couple of different mediums like this. Yeah. Just judging from the range of musicians that, that show up in the magazine and in the podcast, I'm assuming that your musical tastes are really quite broad. Yeah. I mean, I, I love jazz. I love uh, rock. I love indie rock, uh, folk music and bluegrass, uh, blues. You know, I mean, it's, it's, I, uh, I love the good stuff, but you know, everybody has a different, you know, definition of what that is. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I do tend to be drawn when I'm thinking about stories for the magazine towards sort of the icons and the more legendary people. I love a lot of great young artists who are coming up, but mm -hmm. for the format of our magazine and the fact that we want to do these really in-depth stories filled with, um, you know, guitar tales, a lot of younger bands don't have those tales yet. They will. And, and we would love to cover them, but it's just sort of like not necessarily the best fit for what we're doing, you know, in our 128 pages. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the, uh, the Fretboard Journal Summit. Yeah, so this was another demented idea we, we came up with, which was, uh, you know, before I had a kid, you'll be able to relate to this because yeah. I know you're in a similar boat. Before I had a kid, we used to throw these really informal Fretboard Journal reader meetups in Seattle, and it was literally just, you know, an empty bar 
on a Tuesday night and I would do an email blast to our subscribers and say, anyone want to come next week and we'll grab beers and bring a guitar. And they weren't really open mics. It was more kind of an, a grown up version of show and tell or something uh, with, with a lot of beers consumed. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was great. It was amazing who would come out of the woodwork for these things. Uh, and we would pack these bars. And uh, then I had a kid and the bars weren't really in my, you know, day to day life yeah, anymore. Yeah. I hear you. And uh, and and yet I love the idea of sort of a, a guitar centric gathering. And so we've toyed with this forever. I've I've thought of you know what would the TED Talks of guitars look like was the original idea. Um, oh yeah, that's a great idea. And uh, you know where we get all these people we featured in the magazine and and musicians and and just you know take over a place. So last November, we did our first fretboard summit down in the Bay Area. I was able to partner with these guys who are just incredible. They're, they work under the moniker of Artist Home. They do the Timber Festival up here, and then they've worked on Doe Bay's uh, pretty critically acclaimed festival up here. And without their help and, you know, running logistics and operations, you know, I'm just like a curator guy. I'm just the one who's like, oh, maybe we can get uh, Bill Frizzell to be at this thing. Uh, maybe David Crosby will show up. I'm that guy. I'm the guy calling my <laughs> friends to see if they want to come for this weekend. But, um, you know, they really helped out on the back end. And it was a pretty magical, ri ridiculously cool weekend. It was last November, and we took over this kind of funky eco resort and uh the music was ridiculous we had blake mills and bill frizzell and david crosby and chris eldridge and julian lodge and matt Monasteri and brian sudden of hot rise and so it was this crazy melting pot of musicians uh combined with you know some of my favorite builders giving talks and hands-on demonstrations throughout the day again it's sort of like you're you were asking about the my initial elevator pitch of the magazine, it was a little hard to describe because people are so used to the Arlington guitar show model or the Healdsburg guitar show model. Yeah. And everyone was saying, well, you, oh, there'll be tables of, of stuff for sale. Right. And I'm like, no, there's not. you buy the ticket and then it's just all <laughs> free. It's the E it, you know, it's like the e-ticket or whatever. Uh, you just get in. And so we had free music instruction and, um, yeah, it was just kind of a crazy time. So we're doing it again in, uh, we're going to move it to October, October 14th through 16th down in San Diego. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the few complaints we heard uh, was it was just really bitterly cold at, in, mm. in Northern California on the coastline in November. And, uh, and I just saw David Crosby. He played here two days ago and was giving me shit over how cold it was. And so to appease <laughs> David Crosby uh, and get him back next year, which he's, he's already said he will, or this year, uh, we're moving it indoors into a much warmer locale. So cool. Well, I wish yeah. I I wish I could have been to the uh, to the first one, but I've, you I've got to come to the next one. I've got it on my calendar. I got to make it to the to the to the upcoming one. It's, Bring your family. We'll give you a talk. Whatever you need. Uh, there it's you October fourteenth through sixteenth, and you can just go to fretboardsummit.com and get all the details. We haven't announced the full lineup of speakers and and musicians yet, but it's going to be a good one. What does the future hold for Fretboard Journal? It's, is there anything crazy or any new ideas you have coming up on the horizon? Well, the event is a big part of our, uh, you know, uh, it takes up a lot of our bandwidth, and, and I'm really optimistic about that. I, I would love to see it grow, perhaps to even twice a year, maybe one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast. The Fretboard Journal magazine continues to be great and strong, and, uh, you know, we are 
moving into the world of videos and podcasts in a big way. And so, um, you know, we have this kind of ever-growing YouTube channel and everything. Uh, and we're just going to keep focusing. I mean, we're kind of, I'd like to think of us kind of as the, you know, day trotter music of guitar magazines. We're, we've got some incredible sessions happening here in our tiny office in Ballard. Um, you know, and we're going to ramp up the podcasts and, and continue to turn out more magazines. So, Well, I'm, I'm a fretboard journal evangelist. I, I, I tell people to subscribe all the time, and uh, it's, I'm a big believer in, in what you're doing. Thank you so much, Eric. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to interview you, and uh, I wish you good luck in all of your endeavors, be they guitar-related or otherwise. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks so much, Eric. Well, that wraps it up for this edition of the Fret Files. I uh, I would love it if you'd participate in the show. I, I really I, I want to do a lot of question and answer things, and uh, I'd love to hear your feedback. And if you're a if you're a pro, if you're a repairman, if you're a luthier, and uh, you have some input on some things that I've said, or if if you disagree with some things that I've said, I'd love to hear from you. I really would. I'd like to get uh, a, a whole a whole bunch of different opinions on things, and uh, we can be we can be a guitar repair community here. Um. So participate in the show. Go to ericdaw.com, E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. Click the contact link and send me an email there, and I'll use your question as part of the show. Or call or text me, 757-774-8482. You can just leave a voicemail there. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to my wife, of course, Melissa, for joining me on the show, as always. Thank you also to Jason for Lindy for that great interview. That was a lot of fun. And uh, thanks to Michael Van Dieven over at ufoship.com, where this lovely podcast is hosted. And if you want to link to the site, or if you want to find me easily, it's just fretfiles.com. There you go. We'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.